Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My, no- my name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Frank Castiglia. Professor Castiglia is Professor of History at the University of Connecticut, and today we're discussing his latest book, Henin, A Life Between Worlds, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much, Charles. I'm very glad to be here. Just, just one correction. My name is even longer than it seems. It's Castigliola. There's an extra uh, syllable in there. Castigliola, as I pronounce it. Understood. Okay. Professor, why did you write this book? Well, I thought that George Kennan, I mean I, I about this question actually this morning because that's the question people often ask. Um, I think Kennan's story and Kennan's message is, more important now, even than when I wrote the book, started writing the book several years ago, Ken, George Kennan was above all a diplomat, someone who had faith in the uh, in the power of and in the efficacy of people, of different professional diplomats meeting privately uh, without a hurried pace, people who knew each other's culture, and over time uh, arriving at compromise solutions to seemingly irreconcilable problems. Uh, I mean, I think that's something that the world could use today. And Kennan had great faith, particularly that, that, the, that the, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union could come to a peaceful compromise end uh, even before it did in 1991. It actually didn't come to a, a compromise end. It came with a, a basically unconditional uh, Soviet surrender, which which Kennan disapproved of for for many reasons. Let me just finish up one other thing here. Now, of course, many of your listeners will think, well, wait a minute, Kennan is the author of the containment doctrine of containing, not talking with the Soviet Union. But Kennan regarded the containment doctrine of stopping uh, Soviet expansion, in, which he enunciated in 1946-47, regarded the containment doctrine as an if-then proposition. If the Soviets were contained, then the United States should move on toward negotiating with the Russians and trying to reduce tensions. Who was George Kennan by family background? Well, um, he came from a, actually it's interesting, it, 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 his mother's family was kind of upwardly mobile uh, people in Milwaukee. Uh, his uh, maternal uh, grandfather uh, was, was someone who, so up at the age of 13 and traveled around the world, crisscrossed the sea, seven seas, various adventures aboard uh, ships and so forth, and uh, arrested for a while in a French prison and came back to Milwaukee and founded a successful insurance company. That's his mother's side with the Jameses. Um, his father was, uh, his father's name was Kent Kossuth Kennan. He was named after Louis Kossuth, who toured the United States in 1851. Uh, the Hungarian revolutionary, and that's when Kent was born, 1851. His father was an interesting person who uh, started really as a farm boy, who uh, went to, was able to go to college by getting up before dawn and doing farm chores to earn his way. He later became an engineer, a self-taught engineer, and a self-taught lawyer. He also became uh, one of the early U.S. experts on the income tax. And in fact, when the U.S. Uh, Congress is debating the 16th Amendment, 
which enabled the income tax to be established in the United States. Kennan, uh, Casas Kennan, uh, was one of the people testifying. So he was an interesting kind of person, but um, well, I could go into more detail. But that, that's basically the, but the two sides of the family did not get along, and it was exacerbated by the fact that Kennan's mother, Florence James Kennan, died only two months after he was born. And thereafter, he, he George and his three oldest sisters remained close to the Jameses, that the James's family detested for various reasons, which I could talk about, detested Kent uh, Cossett's Kennan. So young George grew up in basically uh, two households, uh, the Jameses and the Kennans, who were mutually antagonistic. In subsequent years, Kennan employed a neo-Freudian interpretation to analyze his behavior, especially the dichotomy between eros and civilization, how much of this do you take on board yourself in your analysis of Kennan's life? I don't, I am not a Freudian. I think that, I, and I make that point. I think uh, Kennan really, he regarded Freudian theories as uh, settled science, you know, and he, he's kind of like that. And which, of course, Freudianism was more, uh, belief of Freudianism was, uh, Freud's theories was more pervasive in the uh, early and mid and even late 20th century, certainly, than it is today. But as to myself, I don't subscribe to Floyd's theory, but I understand and incorporate into my analysis the fact that Kennan did. And so Kennan understood himself in terms of various Freudian uh, ideological or, or theoretical constructs, rather than being that there was an inherent uh, conflict, uh, polarity and, and internal conflict within human beings, particularly men, between eros, by which he meant uh, not just sexual freedom, but also creativity, art, uh, kind of the, just the, the looser ways of doing things, and civilization, which is duty, obligation, and so forth. And he, he felt that kind of uh, tug or that uh, division or conflicting impulses within himself. And he, he, he attached to that, that feel, those feelings within himself the Freudian concept of eros versus civilization. Why did Kennan go to Princeton, and it was his time there as bad as he subsequently made out? Well, he was he he, he was thinking about going to Harvard, and he ended up going to Princeton partly a good part because he was inspired by a uh, teacher at his military boarding school. We introduced him to F. Scott Fitzgerald, and particularly the novel *This Side of Paradise*. Um, and and time there was my I argue in the book that Kennan. Kennan in his memoirs depicted his years as a Princeton student as basically unrelieved misery and alienation and uh, lack of success. That's not what the letters that Kennan wrote at the time indicated, and particularly letters to his uh, older sister, Jeanette, with whom he, he had a very close relationship with her for decades and confided all kinds of things to her. And those letters, and he wrote many letters to her, uh, indicate that he, was, he had a good time uh, much of the time. Uh, and uh, he did okay in his studies, and he was not the, the, the total oddball that he later uh, uh, portrayed himself as being when he wrote his memoir. And it, it's interesting that Kennan, when he wrote that memoir in 1967, which is the memoir of his years from 1925 uh, to 1950, uh, he, he, uh, he, he said that he did not bother to go back to look at his, the letters he had written, 
from the time when he was in college. Rather, he wrote that memoir based uh, based on his colleges, uh, based on his memory. So I think again, kind of a faulty memory. And Kennedy also, with regard to the college years, and Kennedy also at times uh, liked to feel sorry for himself. And I think that he allowed that impulse to feel sorry for himself to kind of uh, shape the way he portrayed his years at Princeton University. Why did Kennedy decide to join the Foreign Service? And why did he decide to specialize in Russian studies? Well, he was, after he graduated, or in his last year, he was unsure exactly what to do for a while. He was thinking about becoming a lawyer, uh, as his father was. and But he had married, uh, some of his professors had links to the State Department. Uh, one of his, uh, he was very, his, George and his three older sisters were close to a, next door neighbor in Milwaukee, and that neighbor had ties, had relatives, or I forget the exact relative, but somebody who was in the State Department, so there were some connections, and, and George had traveled overseas. Uh, at the boy of eight, he was brought by his father uh, to, to Germany, uh, where he learned rudimentary German, and he spent a year in Germany after graduating uh, college. So he liked foreign travel, and it, it seemed like an appealing thing to do. I mean, it wasn't like a strong, this is one feeling he always wanted to do this throughout his life, but it seemed... It was, he fell into it, and but there were some things pulling him into it. Now, as to why he ended up focusing on Russian, the State Department uh, had a program, what we would today call a critical languages program, a program by which the State Department paid its uh, Foreign Service officers, gave them basically a three-year fellowship to learn some language, uh, intimately learn a language that was needed by the State Department, which businesses, Arabic, Russian, Chinese, and so forth. And uh, Kennan chose Russian because the cousin of his grandfather, whose name was also George Kennan, was born also on February 16th, and there were other coincidences as well. Uh, this cousin of his grandfather, George Kennan, had made a national reputation for himself, traveling in Russia in the 18, uh, late 1800s and uh, writing writing books and giving lectures. He wrote in particular about the czarist Russian penal system of, of exiling uh, political prisoners in, um, in Siberia. He wrote about that, visited those camps, and came back and lectured about it in the United States. It was quite, quite well known. So he's somebody that George Kennan had met once and was kind of, uh, a, to some respect, a father figure, uh, someone whom George Frost Kennan, the person I wrote about, uh, respected. Why did he decide to marry Annalisa Sorensen, given their different tastes and interests? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, that who knows? People, you never really know for sure why anyone does any, anything like that, even ourselves. Um, but one of the things I pointed out in the book is that in, um, in the early spring, or mid, I think it was March 1931, Kennan, who was kind of a playboy, he had dated various women, and he was tall, good-looking, had a steady income. He was an American living in Europe. Um, he was an attractive catch or an attractive boat. Um, he decided that, well, you know, he said in one of his letters to his sister, he said, you know, I re this is not for this uh, bachelor existence. I really need to get married soon. Um, and shortly after that, he met Annalisa Sorensen, who was a young 20-year-old 
a Norwegian woman who was studying in Berlin. And, um, you know, it was a white, she was the white person at, she was the person he was dating when he decided to get married. I think that's, that's the, in my view, the story. And um, she was very anxious to marry him. Again, he was a catch. And the only way was then in poor countries. Um, her father was a fairly prosperous merchant, but she saw George Kennedy as, as kind of you know, the exotic appeal of somebody who was an American, somebody who had a good, steady income. There was also the, the allure of uh, someone who was a diplomat. And uh, so she was eager for the relationship, and he was eager to get married. And so they did. They got married on September 11th, 1931, in Norway. They did not have a long courtship then. No, they didn't. They didn't. And in fact, um, I think there was a... So Annalisa went ahead before, like, I think in late July or August or something, 1931, went ahead to kind of break the news to her family get things ready, and George came a little bit later, I think in mid-August 1931. But she wrote back to him a couple letters, interesting, one indicating that she was a little nervous about that George is really going to follow through in this and kind of dangled that she, there was a former uh, fiancé of hers was pursuing her, but she wasn't interested, but hint, hint, George better, better make it to Norway. And also she commented at one point, you know, she had to fill out some consular forms for that to register their upcoming marriage. And she said, you know, I really don't know. I don't know when you were born, your birthday. So it was not like they were they knew each other, I think, extremely well before they decided to get married. Given his ambivalence about American life and culture and his enjoyment of, of European, especially German and Russian culture, would you say that Kennan was a Jamesian character? In some respects. But, I mean, he, he, he did. He remained... He remained an American in the sense that that's where he never thought of that. He did think about living in Europe for a while, and he, he fantasized about moving back to Europe after he retired. But, I mean, Ken was also a highly ambitious person, um, very, very ambitious. And, he, of course, his path toward uh, greater influence and rising in the ranks of, of where he was employed, the U.S. State Department, depended on uh, remaining an American and rising through the ranks of the U.S. U.S. government. So that's why the, the job of a diplomat appealed, because he could do that, uh, pursue his career ambitions, as well as um, uh, continue working for the U.S. government. Would it be true to say that Kennan's experience in opening the first American embassy in the Soviet Union was one of the defining moments in his life? Um, I think that first year that he was in the Soviet Union, he went in December 1933 after Franklin Roosevelt agreed to recognize the Soviet Union. Uh, Kennan went as interpreter and aide to William C. Bullitt, uh, who was the first American ambassador to the Soviet Union. Um, and that year, from December 33 to December 34, that first year, Kennan was in Russia, was a formative influence, and that it was an incredibly exciting time, a time when uh, Soviet society was relatively loose in terms of permitting contact between all kinds of Russian intellectuals and artists and others, ordinary citizens, and the Americans kind of led that kind of mixing, mixing up with Russians, attending parties and getting close with various Russian, especially junior officials, debating Marxism with them, art and so forth. Um, and uh, that was a very, that was a wonderful time in his life. And I think also 
for other, like Charles Bolin, his associate, Charlie Thayer, uh, this was kind of a magical moment, which uh, later when things changed and Stalin began pursuing the purges and things tightened up and, and relations soured between the United States and Soviet Union, that year 33 to 34 remained kind of a, uh, a lost paradise. And it continued to shape the, the bitterness and the resentment and the sorrow at the last of what they had experienced during that year continued to influence their lives and influence Kennan, I think, for the rest of his life. How did Kennan and other foreign service officers react to the Moscow trials? But for Kennan, it was, he was there. He was there uh, at, for at least some of the trials, particularly the trial of Karl Ladek, whom Kennan knew personally, who attended parties at the American embassy, an intellectual whom he respected. So Kennan was, was there at... He was assisting the American ambassador, but who at that point was um, was, um, was somebody else was the American ambassador, and Kennan was uh, basically attending the trial with the ambassador and whispering a translation of the trial proceedings into the ear of the ambassador uh, during during the proceedings, and then spending his nights writing up reports sent to Washington. So he was engaged intensely in the um, in the in the uh, in the trial, observing the trial. In fact, he watched it so closely that when the proceedings of the trial were reported the next day in the Soviet newspapers and the Moscow newspapers, Kennan picked up on typos uh, or or errors, small errors that that had crept into the uh, official Russian account of what he had heard the day before. So, and 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 seeing that, seeing that, it was basically, I think, it was traumatic for. Him. All silly the, the victims of the trials, but in a way, it was a trauma for Kennan as well, who saw people that he'd been not just Radek, but the doctor who had saved the life of his infant daughter was 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 uh, was uh, tried and executed. There were many people whom Kennan knew or respected who disappeared, and that had a profound effect on him. What were Kennan's political beliefs circa the late 1930s? Well, that's complicated. Um, I think Kennan was um, had had tendencies. Let's put this way: tendencies in the late 30s toward uh, kind of an authoritarian preference for a more author authoritarian kind of government, even in the United States. I think these views were moderated to to a large extent by his experience, subsequent experience. Observing what authoritarianism amounted to in, in Germany and Germany, German occupied Europe, but also in the Soviet Union. But uh, he, he tended to think that government should be, uh, he always continued to think that government should play kind of a, uh, an important role in making society a better place. And he didn't have much respect for the, uh, for the good judgment of, of many Americans, whom we saw it basically. You know, confused by advertising, manipulated by politicians, uh, committed to consumerism, you know, not not people who were wise in their political decisions. Kennan was an elitist. I think that's an, that's an important aspect. He was an elitist. He thought that people, educated people, such as himself, people with like ethnic background, such as he believed he had, uh, these people were best to lead society and certainly to lead and conduct U.S. foreign policy. 
Well, what's Kennedy's experience of being in Berlin from 1939 to 1942? Well, at first he was, okay, so after uh, war was declared in September 1939, uh, Kennedy was, uh, went, well, he had been in Prague for the previous year. He went to Berlin and he was an assistant to the American ambassador there. And Kennan, um, it, was, it was a very intense experience. First of all, the American embassy had a huge amount of work because the U.S. was still had diplomatic relations with Germany and the U.S. was acting as uh, on behalf of other countries that had been occupied by Germany or had broken relations with Germany. So there was a lot of just like daily work to do, which was involved in. Kennan also, and that this found this out, this is fascinating. Kennan also had secret ties with the Count von Molka and other German aristocrats who were kind of a kind of an aristocratic opposition to Hitler and who had hoped to replace Hitler. Um, and Kennan became quite moved by the cause of these of these uh, this kind of aristocratic Hitler, resistance to Hitler and uh, so he, he kind of placed to help them and then the war broke out and uh, Kennan then was interned uh, in a hotel along with 140 or so other American diplomats and journalists and Kennan in effect became the leader of that American community who negotiated with the Germans about all the details of food and, and uh, rooms. They, they were interned in a hotel near Frankfurt and uh, Kennan was, was his liaison basically between a lot of discontented, unhappy like Americans with cabin fever, cabin fever, wondering when, whether and when they would ever get home, and the German authorities who were not sure how far they should uh, crack down on these Americans or not. So these people, it's not that they were tortured, not that they were really in prison. They were confined in a hotel with a limited uh, room to exercise. They could go outside just a short distance, and the food was not the best, but there's a lot of grounds for complaint, but not actual misery. And McKenna was a diplomat. He again, he 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 was a diplomat who tried to negotiate and did successfully. I think uh, the the demands, conflicting demands of the Americans, he was in charge of, and the Germans who were trying to deal with these rambunctious Americans while also fighting a war. Kennan met with President Roosevelt twice. What did he think? Right. Of, what did he think of him? He did not think. Uh, Kennan and Roosevelt really kind of mismatched personalities. Kennan thought that uh, Roosevelt's breezy, uh, oh, I'll take care of it, don't you worry about it, uh, let's change the subject kind of way of dealing with lots of problems. Kennan uh, underestimated Franklin Roosevelt and thought that he was a cipher, that he was just kind of just a BSer when it came to foreign affairs. FDR was far more sophisticated and had far more uh, far more of a program, far more of a policy than Kennan realized. And I think the personality differences made it difficult for the, each of them to appreciate the other. Roosevelt, it's not, not quite clear what Roosevelt thought of Kennan, but clearly he did not think, he thought, respected Kennan, but when it came time to choose the advisors for the Tehran Summit Conference or the Yalta Summit Conference, uh, Roosevelt did not choose Kennan, in fact, chose Kennan's friend as interpreter, uh, Charles Boland, uh, and Kennan, that's something that Kennan resented. He thought that he he was he was the, the expert and should have been at those summit conferences. Would you attribute that choice more to the fact that uh, Boland had a 
greater capability in his career to being on board with official policy, whatever it was at the time, or with yes. the fact that uh, Bolin came from a m much more upper-crust background, his grandfather and his mother's side being American minister to Paris. Right. I think all, all those things. And Cannon, it, it could be Bolin. Bolin understood that to, to, to get along, you need to, to, to go along. To get along, you need to go along. And uh, so, yeah, I think all those things played a role. And Bolin was also knew Russia well. It was, and, um, you know, it was certainly highly capable. Now, you fault Kennan for not understanding Roosevelt's policy towards the Soviet Union. Why so, given that scholars such as John Lewis Gaddis, Wojciech Masnay, and Sean McMeekin are equally critical of Roosevelt's Russian policy? Well, I think that, um, I, I think the irony here is that Kennan, by 1945, Kennan and Roosevelt agreed. And well, neither realized that they did agree. They agreed that the best solution, given the fact that the Soviet armies had rolled back the Germans and the Soviets were, in fact, occupying much of it, most of Eastern Europe, and certainly including Poland and Eastern Germany, Kennan and Roosevelt both thought that the best practical solution was to divide Europe between basically a Soviet sphere and an American-British sphere, Soviet sphere in the East and American-British sphere in the West, and not contest Soviet control over Eastern Europe. That, that was Roosevelt's policy. Um, that was Roosevelt's policy at Yalta and at Tehran, and what he signaled to the Russians in various, in various times in various ways. And that's what Kennan thought was the, the best, you know, given the difficult circumstance that the Russians were occupying those territories, that was the best thing to do. Now, I, I think where I differ from with, with Gaddis and, and Massey and, and some other scholars is that uh, I regard Kennan, and particularly Roosevelt. Roosevelt, he's, he's making the policy, not Kennan. Roosevelt's policy is as sophisticated and as believing that the important thing, the important thing was not to allow the collaboration that had grown up during World War II between the Americans and the British and the Russians, not to allow that to deteriorate to a serious degree. There might be tensions and differences, but not to allow the relationship to, to break down because that was important for the long-term peace. And also Roosevelt, excuse me, one of the things, Roosevelt talked about the immediate post-war era as a time of transition, as a time of transition. So it was important to maintain contact with the Soviets, not allow relations to deteriorate too badly, and that over time, Roosevelt felt over time, uh, the Russians would moderate and, uh, and their control over Eastern Europe could be made more, more benign. And also, you have to remember here, you have to remember that Soviet, actual Soviet on-the-ground control over Eastern Europe uh, got harsher and harsher after 1945 into 46, 47, 48, as relations between the Soviet Union and the West deteriorated. Stalin cracked down more and more as a way of keeping control over areas that uh, had, had, had had more autonomy. There were elections in Hungary. Uh, there were elections in Czechoslovakia, initially after World War II. Now, there was at that time, I think at the Yalta Conference immediately before, an exchange of uh, or correspondence between Bolin and Kennan, in which case um, Kennan advocated the policy you described, which was basically spheres of influence, division of Europe between East and West, whereas Bolin, in his response, indicated that this was not politically acceptable and had a more 
idealistic, if you like, uh, view of uh, future Russo-American relations. In that exchange, was Bowler reflecting his own views or views of Hopkins and Roosevelt? Well, I think, okay, you know, Roosevelt is a very sophisticated person who uh, was also the master of deception. Uh, there's, a, there's a book about uh, Roosevelt's hiding of his, his uh, disability. It's called Splendid, Splendid Deception. Um, but Roosevelt, you know, let me just back up a bit. Roosevelt got the United States, basically got the United States involved in World War II by saying he wanted to keep the United States out of the war, but yet taking steps that brought the United States closer and closer to war, uh, basically uh, cutting off Japan's uh, supply of oil, initiating a naval war with the Germans in the North Atlantic and so forth, steps and various other things, steps that brought the U.S. closer and closer to war. Similarly, similarly, Roosevelt realized that the American public, those, uh, uh, those Americans who wanted, during the war, who wanted post-war engagement with the world and were not isolationists, those people who wanted post-war engagement in the world, and American people I'm talking about now, um, want, had a kind of Wilsonian conception of that the United States should favor democracy in all circumstances, should favor self-determination by small nations, even small nations close to the borders of large, great powers, and that's what the American people favored. Roosevelt talked about that. He talked about that in the Atlantic Charter. He talked about that in terms of the United Nations Declaration. But Roosevelt's actual policies, actual policies, and what he actually said to Stalin at Tehran and at Yalta was different, was big power, kind of a cynical, but I think realistic, big powers making deals at the expense of small nations. Um, and so, for instance, in Europe, uh, Roosevelt had the uh, the Soviets agree to basically uh, fig leaves of commitments to the Declaration on Liberated Europe and commitments to elections, free elections in Poland, verbal commitments which didn't have any teeth in them. So when Roosevelt hope, hoped would mollify the American public while Roosevelt was fashioning uh, and agreeing to big power deals that were dividing dividing Europe. So I think Bolin, um, and it's also that you know I, I get involved in I detail this in a book I did on Franklin Roosevelt. Bolin was also close with Harry Hopkins, and um, at this point, 1944-45, and Harry Hopkins had shifted away from Roosevelt's policy of trying to make a deal with Stalin. Hopkins had shifted more toward what became Harry Truman's policy and also Bolin's policy after the war. Uh, of more confrontation with the Russians in Eastern Europe. So it's a complicated matter. Um, but I think that Roosevelt thought he knew what he was doing, and what he was doing is basically, he just used this analogy and other things too, he was backing into, talking about democracy, talking about uh, no big power deals, talking about that in 44, 45, but backing into those big power deals while he was presenting a front. To the American people, because he thought the alternative, he thought if the American people realized that he was uh, fashioning big power, kind of cynical uh, uh, deals with the Soviets, the American people would react against that and reject the United Nations, reject international uh, dealings, and the United States would be back to where it was after World War One, when the Senate rejected uh, the Versailles Treaty and the American uh, United States to some degree, to some degree moved into more of an isolationist stance. Roosevelt 
realized what had happened to Richard Wilson, did not want that to happen to his policies, and thought he could pull it off. What was the background to Kennan's long telegram, and why are you so critical of it? Well, it, I think the long, why am I critical? I think that Kennan, Kennan was in a, by early 1946, Kennan felt he was in a, he was upset. He was, he was angry. He was angry with the Soviet government, uh, which, because he was unhappy with the degree of brutality that the Russians were exercising in Eastern Europe. Also, something that was very important to Kennan, very important to him, was the fact that Soviets, uh, secret police were preventing uh, him and other Americans and other foreigners from having ordinary contacts, uh, cultural and friendly contacts with the Russian people. Remember back to the influence of that year, 33, 34. So that, that memory of what, what had been possible back then stayed in Kennan's mind. The fact that it was no longer possible uh, in the post-World War II period um, made, him, made him angry. Uh, he also felt, he was also, he also felt, uh, this is early 46, that he was not being listened to in Washington. He didn't realize that he actually had more influence than he thought. Uh, so he was upset with the, um, he was upset with the Soviet government, upset with the American government for ignoring him, not inviting him at Yalta, and uh, kind of getting kind of stir crazy in Moscow. And it, it's interesting that Kennan loved being in Russia, but and every time he was stationed there, after a while, he needed out. He needed out. Uh, he kind of, in a way, he couldn't live with the Russians, he couldn't live without them. Um, so many things were playing on him in, in early 46. And when some of his friends asked him, as in the State Department, friends in the State Department asked him to interpret one of Stalin's speeches, February 9th, 1946, uh, election speeches Stalin gave, which is interesting speech in its own right. We could talk about that. Um, Kennan decided, as he put it, now he's going to let them have it. And so he laid out a long uh this long telegram, the longest telegram ever sent to the State Department, in which he he drew it kind of a fantastical, it's really a fantasy of that he portrayed the Soviet Union as as an existential threat to the United States, uh, and he it was not just the Soviet Union; it was kind of this fanatical political force. Kennan, in, in this long telegram, kind of dehumanized dehumanized the Soviet leadership to a fanatical political force, you know, there weren't really people involved. If you look at the long telegram, it doesn't really involve people, it involves forces uh, that are kind of abstract and and doesn't involve people with whom you could you could always compromise with people. But uh, that's not what was presented as the threat in the long telegram. So Kennan laid that all out and um was Kennan was fantastic pro stylist, was very persuasive language. Uh, it claimed to be coldly rational, but it was used very emotionally evocative language, and the uh, telegram had an enormous effect. The other, the other thing that's important to note here is that Kennan, in that long telegram, presented the Soviets as an existential threat, or the, the fanatical force, as an existential threat to the United States. And then in the end, in terms of the end of the long telegram, in terms of laying out, okay, what should the United States do in response to that threat? Kennan kind of shifts gears incredibly to an incredible extent. It says, well, okay, we really don't have to do that much. Um, we just need to basically 
you know, help Western Europe recover and improve conditions within the United States. It's kind of like, you know, the, the tremendous danger, uh, but we don't have to gear up our military. We don't have to do any of that. Just rebuild, have to rebuild Western Europe and deal with domestic problems in the United States. And then thereafter, when American officials who read the long telegram and it circulated widely through the U.S. government, when American officials interpreted the long telegram to mean that the United States had to beef up its military and confront the Soviets with military as well as political and economic weapons, Kennedy said, well, wait, wait, you know, I, I've been misunderstood. I've been misinterpreted. I didn't mean that we needed to militarize the confrontation with the Soviet Union, just we needed to do the steps I mentioned, uh, rebuild Western Europe and deal with American domestic problems. But of course, Kennedy set it up. He set it up uh, unintentionally by presenting an existential threat. Naturally, American officials thought you deal with an existential threat by all means possible, including military uh, military confrontation. Not a war, but building of American military forces. So I take it you would agree with uh, Lloyd Gardner, one of his early books, Architects yes. Evolution, where I think he makes the observation about Kennan, quote, in George Frost Kennan, the Calvinist elder wrestles with the Bismarckian realpolitician, unquote. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. Now, why was Kennan named as the first head of the State Department's policy planning staff? And what was the nature, presuming he had one, of Kennan's grand strategy? Yeah, well, he was kind of a wunderkind at this point. So he had been far off Moscow as a junior. It was number two in the American embassy in Moscow. That's February 1946. By April, May 1946, he was brought back to the United States. Uh, he was sent by the State Department on a lecture tour of the uh, western parts of the United States in the summer and early fall of 46. And then for 46, 47, that kind of academic year, he gave lectures at the National War College and kind of a brilliant series of lectures laying out American strategy in terms of dealing with the Soviet Union. And then in May 1947, Kennan, who again is regarded as this the Russian expert at this point, the Russian expert, it's Kennan, not Boland. <clears throat> Uh, he's appointed, and he has, he has friends in the Truman administration, particularly James Forrestal, who's Secretary of the Navy, and later the first Secretary of Defense. That long telegram was read, was sent. The long telegram was sent um, on March 5th, 1946, two weeks after it arrived in Washington, which coincidentally was the day that Churchill made his Iron Curtain speech. The long telegram was sent to every American diplomatic post around the world. So that's the kind of shows you the kind of credibility that Kennan had by that period, 46. And in 47, when the policy planning staff was created, uh, Kennan seemed the logical person to head it up. He, he had support basically throughout the uh, State Department and through much of the U.S. government. And so he was appointed head of the policy planning staff for, with the purview, is now 43 years old, purview of all of U.S. foreign policy, the long-range planning all of the U.S. foreign policy, with an office next door to that of Secretary of State George C. Marshall. So it was an enormous step up from Moscow uh, a year and a couple of months earlier to now next door to Marshall's office. And so in that year, particularly 47, 48, and 49, Kennedy was highly influential in preparing. Uh, he had a staff, but it was largely him, preparing a series of policy planning staff papers, which outlined 
suggested U.S. policy in a variety of areas around the world. And one thing I should say here is that <clears throat> with something that I discovered when I wrote the book is that Kennan in the 1920s and 30s, back in the 20s and 30s, Kennan had sent into the State Department reports on all kinds of issues, not just related to U.S. Russia, but all kinds of issues uh, that he concerned himself with. So in a sense, he was preparing himself for the wider role that he got a chance to uh, to, to have uh, in, in 1947. Now, in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, at times it gives the appearance that you blame Kennan more than indeed Stalin for the origins of the Cold War. No, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I wouldn't say that. No, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I mean, first of all, the kind of... Kennan, even, as I said, has his influential role in 1947. He's not in charge of U.S. foreign policy. The person, people in charge, and Secretary of State Marshall and then later Dean Acheson and, and other officials. Uh, and that's, that's no. I, so Kennan is not in a position to start the Cold War. Kennan, Kennan, Kennan again, is... Fantastic pro stylist, and in the Long Telegram, and in the Mister X article published in Foreign Affairs in July 1947, which repeated largely the arguments of the Long Telegram. In those two manifest, they were manifestos. In those two manifestos, Kennan laid the uh, gave the intellectual framework, the phraseology that American policymakers used in pursuing what was becoming the Cold War. And I noticed just in yesterday's New York Times, the word containment was used again and again with regard to U.S. relations with China. So that kind of, Kennan birth authored the phraseology. If Kennan, George Kennan had never been born, the Cold War would still have occurred. Uh, I don't think you can say that about Joseph Stalin. Um, so, and, and why, why, as to why the Cold War occurred, that's obviously a complex question. But basically, as I see it anyway, it occurred because U.S. policy veered away from Franklin, what Franklin Roosevelt had laid out as basically a U.S.-Soviet uh, accommodation, which recognized Soviet control over Eastern Europe. And then after, uh, as you know, immediately after Roosevelt died, Harry Truman shifted policy, and that was clear. The British Embassy commented two days after Roosevelt died that everything has changed in Washington. So then after that, it was kind of a shot for a shot, punch in the arm, us punching the Russians, the Russians punching us back, and it was a kind of a deterioration of relations that became the Cold War. Kind of like what's happening now with the United States and China, where each side is, is acting in a kind of a provocative way t toward the other. So right, that's it's, it's a complex issue, but certainly George Kennan is not more responsible than Stalin for causing the Cold War. He wasn't in a position to do that. Well taken. Um, what I wanted to f uh, ask is, um, there is an appreciable or noticeable diminution of Kennan's influence as uh, Dean Atchison becomes Secretary of State in January 1949. Would you say that uh, Kennan's diminishing influence was caused by the fact that his interaction with Atchison was the interaction of two very different people in terms of how they related to the world and how they related to their atmosphere? Or was the fact that Kennan was not a very good bureaucratic infighter, unlike, say, people like the Assistant Secretary of State for Western European Affairs, John Nickerson, who seems to have bested Kennan in terms of the decision 
I think it was Plan B for the division of Germany and the re, uh, rearmament of Germany. Um, I think those two factors are important. That that Atchison and Kennan, um, you know, had had a kind of a complex, difficult relationship. Kennan was not a good bureaucratic uh, infighter, as good as some other people were. But and and then there's also the fact that I think Kennan had George Marshall, who preceded Atchison as Secretary of State. Marshall liked extensive staff work and relied on his staff. Great to a large extent. Atchison did more himself, and and um, I think Atchison regarded Kennan as uh, as as a rival uh, that Atchison wanted to put in his place. But more important than any of the things we mentioned so far, more important by far, is a difference in policy, and that's the basic thing. And certainly with with uh, Hickerson, it, it was Hickerson versus Kennan was very prominent here. Um, Kennan, as I said earlier, Kennan regarded containment as an if-then proposition. If the Soviets were contained, then the United States should move toward negotiations and compromise and reducing tensions. Kennan believed that by 1948, certainly by 1949, the Russians were largely contained. And they were not expanding their influence further. Western Europe was recovering. The U.S. was had closer and closer ties with Western Europe through the Marshall Plan. And Kennan then began, as early as 1948, Kennan then began advocating within the State Department for negotiations with the Russians, particularly over trying to defuse tensions over what was going to happen in Germany, divided Germany. And Atchison was against that. Atchison was in favor of the policy that the U.S. would pursue, namely building up Western Germany as a bulwark of support for the United States with Atchison liked to call situations of strength, building of Japan as a bulwark as, as an ally of the United States. Kennan thought that was a mistake. Kennan, Kennan was ready to move on beyond the, the Cold War, whereas Atchison was putting uh, policies and steps and institutions. You know, he, Atchison termed it later termed his memoir, present at the creation. Atchison was busy creating the institutions and the uh, institutional framework, framework that the United States had during the Cold War, the NATO alliance, uh, a rebuilt Western Germany, Japan as an ally, and so forth. Atchison was doing, busy doing those things, and Kennedy thought that was the wrong direction to take. So that's the more important difference. It's the difference of a policy rather than the bureaucratic abilities is one thing, but if you have a difference of policy, basic difference of policy, the best bureaucratic uh, skills are not going to prevail. In essence, uh, you could al almost say that for Kennan, containment was a means to an end, whereas for Atchison, containment seems to have been an end, almost an end in itself. That's right. That's a good way to put it. And I, it, I think, you know, Atchison regarded the free world, that concept, the free world, and that political arrangement, economic relation, military re arrangement, and the free world as valuable, valuable for the United States. Um, and Cannon, and Atchison, Atchison was happy to see the Cold War continue indefinitely. Cannon thought it was dangerous and wanted to bring it to an end. Why was Cannon's period as ambassador to Moscow so disastrous? Okay, because I think that, um, again, the conflict mostly over policy. Cannon 
uh, was appointed ambassador to the Soviet Union in the last months of the Truman administration because Atchison and Truman wanted someone in Moscow to kind of reassure the Soviets that the United States did not intend to expand the Korean War into some kind of third world war, and someone to kind of keep an eye on what the Russians were doing. Kennan, by contrast, Kennan was worried that tensions were building between the United States and Soviet Union, and Kennan feared the prospect of an imminent war. Um, and finally, Kennan was opposed to the, but was coming to fruition at this point, the Atchison-Truman policy of creating West Germany as a rearmed ally of the United States, as a nation that would eventually join NATO. Kennan saw that move, you know, that rearming and, and, and rebuilding of Western Germany as an ally of the United States, keeping Germany divided. Kennan saw all that as dangerous. And so he basically tried on his own to reach out to the Russians that did not, that, you know, did not result in any success. He was hampered by the U.S. government. And um, Kennan, and I said earlier, you know, he, he found it difficult living in Russia. Um, you know, and the time he was there, he loved it, and yet he was frustrated by it. And by after a few months, after he arrived in May, and by September, late September, uh, he was so exasperated that he made some highly undiplomatic remarks in Berlin and got himself declared persona non grata. Uh, out, he was expelled from the Soviet Union. The only American ambassador advanced today ever expelled from uh, Moscow. Why was Kennan uh, forced out of the State Department by John Foster Dulles? Well, I think Dulles regarded, well, first of all, when Kennan, Kennan made those remarks in Berlin, and he, he compared, he said that the restrictions imposed by the Soviets on contact between foreigners and Soviet citizens with relation to what he had experienced in Nazi Germany. But Kennan said that in Berlin, really, seven years after the end of the war, again, the Soviets were so angry they kicked him out. And most American officials, including Dulles, um, threatened. Kennan is having, this was a terrible gap. This is, this is a unbelievably uh, clumsy, stupid thing to say, and I think that further undercut Kennan's credibility, um, which was undermined by rather because Kennan was trying to suggest, keep, kept on suggesting negotiations with the Russians instead of uh, maintaining the Cold War. And finally, also, the, the, the dollars uh, in terms of Dulles was kind of the attack dog. Dulles, along with Nixon, were the attack dogs, and Dwight Eisenhower, the benign uh, hero of laboratories running for election in 1952. And Dulles was talking about not containment. That wasn't enough. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not containment was too, but too, too passive a policy. Thanks for talking about rollback, rolling back the Russians from Eastern Europe and containment. Uh, Kennan's name is associated with containment. So, uh, for I think personal as well as policy reasons, Dulles uh, didn't want to have Kennan uh, in in the State Department and and basically uh, fired him. I mean that that's not he didn't strictly fire him, but he did not appoint him to another position. What was Kennan trying to say in his 1957 Reith lectures? What was the common Western official Western response to it? Well, Kennan was, it was simply called disengagement, disengagement. The idea that, that 
and it, so okay, the things we're proceeding further from what I just said a few minutes ago, um, that's in Germany by 1957, was a member of NATO, uh, was rearming, um, and in 1957, both the Americans and the Russians were on the verge of doing what they later did, which is namely to install nuclear-tipped missiles in Germany. So now you had Soviet and American nuclear-tipped missiles face-to-face uh, in the heart of Europe, you know, in this narrow confine of on the German-German frontier. Ken thought that was that prospect, which was going to, about to be happening, uh, of the approaching those nuclear weapons, was incredibly dangerous and unnecessary step. And so this was the, the brief lectures, which were held over the BBC, to an enormous, enormous audience, uh, people tuning in to listen. Um, Kennedy, this is Kennedy arguing that, look, we should step back from this mounting confrontation, um, and we should have it, the West, the, the Americans and the Russians should negotiate with each other to have a mutual a mutual pullback of the military forces from the heart of Europe and to look toward eventually reunifying a neutral Germany that would not be tied with either side of the uh, of the east east and west. Uh, actually, this was, would be a way of dealing with became another very dangerous uh, nuclear potential nuclear crisis, normally crisis over Berlin in 1958-59. And again, in 61, 62, of course, if Germany were reunited, the Valley of Berlin no longer be divided. Uh, so Kennan saw, and then finally he thought there should be some negotiations to reduce what was the spiraling uh, atomic arms race. So those are all the factors that Kennan thought were crucially dangerous, uh, very dangerous, and why diplomacy was needed. And that's my initial comment. In, our, in their interview, that Kennan had a very strong belief in the efficacy of diplomacy to solve, uh, over time, to solve even difficult problems. Why did Kennan accept the embassy in Belgrade in 1961? Well, because Kennan, as I said earlier, was a very ambitious man. And it, it bothered him greatly that he had not been... In, that, Dollars and Eisenhower would not appoint him to any significant um, job. And we thought, okay, he had a chance to start over again with the Democrats coming in, John of Kennedy. Clinton hoped for a more responsible position, more, you know, more important embassy than Belgrade. Kennedy would offer Harvard of Belgrade or Warsaw, uh, but Kennan chose Belgrade partly because he, he admired Tilo, who was, had kind of an independent stance toward Moscow. And um, Kennan saw that maybe he would be able, in Belgrade, to do something useful and, and, and try to encourage, again, negotiations, compromise between the United States and the Soviet Union. And he tried. He tried to have a special kind of backdoor channel to, to Moscow through cultivating the Soviet ambassador to Belgrade. And they did develop a close relationship, but Kennan's efforts to kind of strike out on his own or, or, or to be an important uh, vehicle for U.S.-Soviet uh, talks. That effort by Kennan was struck down by Secretary of State Dean Ross who saw Kennan as a rival. What was the gist of Kennan's testimony 
before the Senate about American policy towards Vietnam in 1966. Right. This was a kind of dramatic, televised testimony, February 1966, as you say. Basically, Kennan was saying that Kennan, the author of the containment doctrine, <clears throat> Kennan was saying that containment did not apply to Vietnam, that con containment was the wrong policy to pursue in Vietnam, the Vietnam, South Vietnam was not a vital interest to the United States, that the United States was uh, just decking its prestige and credibility around the world by making war on a small third world country, namely North Vietnam, and that uh, this was not in America's interest. America was uh, pursuing this war, and it was everything that was pursuing that war was counter to American interests. And this was important because Kennedy was one of the first establishment figures to come out against the Vietnam War. I mean, he was testifying in his three-piece suit, really kind of austere establishment, conservative uh, appearance, calling challenging, challenging American policy. Yes. Uh, what was Kennedy's reaction to the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, Cameron, you know, Hermann Fru in 1947 in his Mr. X article had predicted um, the eventual, as he put it, moderation or collapse of Soviet power. Um, but when it actually happened um, in 1991, he was concerned that the first of all, if the Soviet Union fell apart, <clears throat> that the uh, constituent parts of the Soviet Union, excuse me, the constituent parts of the Soviet Union might go off in their own dangerous directions. He's also worried what's going to happen to all those nuclear weapons that the Soviet Union has. Um, and also, I think also Kennan, Kennan was in a, in a way kind of a bit of a Russian nationalist. He, 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 he didn't like to see the various parts of the Soviet Union each go their own way. Um, he was skeptical about the efficacy of independent of Ukraine and came out and said that. He was skeptical about that. He, he didn't, didn't think the Russians would accept in the long term accept an independent Ukraine. Um, so, you know, for all these reasons, he also, thought, he also sympathized greatly with Gorbachev and thought that Gorbachev's efforts to uh, to reform, reform communism and reform the Soviet system, he admired that. Um, and, and feared that the collapse of the Soviet Union would lead to chaos, both domestically and in terms of, of foreign affairs. More than 10 years after his death, what do you make of George Frost Kennan? Well, I think, again, as I said at the beginning, I think the lesson is that uh, the importance of diplomacy, uh, that diplomacy, as Kennan put it, uh, can put what seems to be irreconcilable positions, irreconcilable opposing positions, it's just the asking price. The asking price is a bargaining process that is often long, tedious, but um, if pursued in good faith, can often lead to compromise solutions. Uh, I think that's, that's a highly important lesson for us today. Would you say that Kennan was a man of heroic stature? No. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I mean, as a... I think, no, I mean, you know, in terms of like, okay, so where is the hero? I mean, I think he tried to do things, a uh, number of things, which 
trying to push for an easing of the Cold War, that effort failed. Um, so I, I don't think he did. No, I don't think so. <laughs> On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.